The following audio is from a sermon series from Paul's first epistle to the Corinthians. For more information about Sacred City Church, please visit sacredcitychurch.com. Hear the word of the Lord from 1 Corinthians 15, verse 50 through 58. I tell you this, brothers, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed in a moment in the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable and we shall be changed. For this perishable body must put on the imperishable and this mortal body must put on immortality. When the perishable puts on the imperishable and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written. Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your sting? Where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God, who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. This is the word of the Lord. Well, this is the season of death. Death is all around. Um, it's in the air, and um, the trees are starting to, the leaves on the trees. It's, it's a beautiful process, but it is, it is death. Um, and pretty soon, everything's going to be brown and bare, just sort of stark as winter arrives. And it's fitting that we experience this annual death because... Death is such an inevitable part of life. The fact that we all ha- all die has haunted people um, since the dawn of time for all of human history. Now, as I said just a moment ago, I, I, I work at a, a classical Christian school called Morningstar Academy. And one of the things, as a classical school, one of the things that we, we really value is primary sources. Sources that were written um, way back in history. So our students read a lot of these. Epic of Gilgamesh, Beowulf. And what you find as you read many of these sources is that there is this preoccupation with death. There's this anxiety about death. The ancient Egyptians, for example, spent the, the entire society spent so much of its energy and logistics and labor on preparing for death, Right? I mean, the pyramids are kind of the, this is the one thing we think about when we think about Egypt and all the time and just kind of the architectural feat that those things were. It's just a, it's just a graveyard. It was a, it was a place for dead people. Now, in our own day, we've done a pretty good job of kind of suppressing this reality of death. We have all sorts of things, Xboxes, earbuds, televisions that help distract us. From the reality of death. And even when we or someone that we love is maybe sick or or on the cusp of death, we have this way of kind of pushing, pushing it away. We try to. Charles Spurgeon, in a sermon on death, says, It is the general custom with sick people to talk about getting well. And those who visit them, even when they are gracious people, will see the tokens of death upon them. And yet will speak as if they were hopeful of their recovery. 
You see, the reality of death is kind of like a beach ball at the pool. Maybe you've probably done this before. You have a beach ball and you're in the pool and you try with all your might to kind of suppress it, submerge it under the water. Like get it, hold it down. And you might be successful for a split second, but the beach ball keeps popping back up. And that's kind of how death is in our lives. We try with all of our might to try to submerge death beneath our consciousness. And it just, it's always going to pop back up. We, We can't escape it. And in our passage today, and really in chapter 15, 1 Corinthians chapter 15 as a whole, Paul is saying, I have this truth, I have this reality that is so powerful, so poignant and sharp that it's like a needle to that beach ball. It will, it will pop the beach ball. The resurrection obliterates the great enemy, death. And what Paul is changing, or what Paul's explaining here, completely changed the course of Western civilization. There's a, there's a French philosopher, a uh, contemporary guy, that did the impossible. He wrote a philosophy book that people actually read. <laughs> it's an international bestseller. Um, his name is Luc Ferry, or Ferry, it's F-E-R-R-Y. I'm assuming it's pronounced Ferry. Um, but he... he uh, it's called a, a brief history of thought, and in that book, he he takes he goes kind of this survey over um, Western philosophy, and I was very intrigued. He's talking about the Greeks and how Greek philosophy dominated Western civilization for a very long time, and then Christianity replaced it during the medieval period. And I was very intrigued to see how he handled this this change. Why did how could Christianity this little backwoods Palestinian religious group replace the greatness of Greek philosophy. And he's a non-Christian. I was interested to see how he, how he explained it. And here's what he said. Greek philosophy did not provide a satisfying answer for death. Christianity did. And that's how, it's, that's how it supplanted Greek philosophy. Christianity had the resurrection. And people, people needed that. They wanted a concrete answer for this question of death. So the resurrection is not just a, it's not just a non-negotiable as Paul says earlier in chapter 15. It's what makes Christianity crunchy and lively and powerful. Your end in life is not this Casper like floating um, existence where you just kind of float around like this spirit, right? The, the, the Bible is not moving towards um, this Tom and Jerry view of heaven. Right, and I can I can remember the episode right now. They their spirits kind of go up this long escalator, and they go up way up into the clouds. And there's harps and there's pudgy babies. That's not what we're moving towards. The Bible speaks of a bodily resurrection, and not only will we be resurrected, but all of creation will be resurrected, transformed, um, and, and it'll be a new heaven. Heaven will be brought down, and, and a new creation will be unified, and they will be joined together. So if you want to know what life, um, resurrected life is like, if you want to know what the goal of the the Bible is, the best way to do that is simply look out the window. That's kind of what we're moving towards. Something that looks a little bit like what we see outside our windows, right? It looks a lot like life, albeit transformed. Now, you can see how this validates creation, right? This resurrection, 
It's really a stamp of a, God is saying creation is good and I'm not going to just throw it out completely. We're going to transform it. We're going to work with it and we're going to create um, a, a new world out of it. And <clears throat> the resurrection and the incarnation of Jesus are kind of God's stamp of approval on, on the physical, on creation, on the body. You know, Jesus was, he was perfect and he was embodied. So it can't be that bad to have a body if he was, if he retained his perfection, even after he had a body. And then not only that, but his resurrected body was physical, right? The disciples touched it. Now, when Western civilization ditched this Greek um, philosophy for Christianity, like I said, the impact was huge. And we could spend a long time going into how Christianity um, really impacted the course of of Western civilization, which is basically European and even now thanks to Europeans coming over here, American culture, how, how, how Christianity has impacted our world. But I'm going to give you, we could, we could, I could spend a whole semester year explaining these things, but I want to just focus on one little thing for this, for just a few minutes. Um, let's consider how Christianity, the resurrection and the incarnation impacted math, mathematics, Right? Something is seemingly unrelated to spiritual things as math. We believe in our own day, we believe that the precision and tidiness of math, if you apply it to the, to the physical world, you get pretty amazing results. Right? So math, and it's all orderly, it's very structured. What we believe as a culture is if we take those numbers and those formulas and equations and we begin to apply them to the real world, we get cars. We get missions to the moon. We get water parks. We get all sorts of things. And it's because of our belief in this that math jobs pay so well because math can do some pretty amazing stuff. Now, humans, this, and this is going to sound kind of strange, but humans have not always believed that. They've not always always believed that math and its tidiness corresponded so closely to the material or physical world. The Greeks, for example, believed that creation was really fundamentally flawed and marred and tainted. And so they never really... So while the Greeks made a lot of really good advances in math, if you've taken geometry, you've probably run into a few Greek names in that class. They did some great stuff mathematically, but they never really applied it to the physical world because they had this assumption that Math is tidy and perfect, but math doesn't apply to the world because it's not perfect, right? Trying to apply math to, to, to the physical creation is like trying to fit a round peg into a square hole. They just don't, they don't go together. Now, strange as it may seem, the incarnation and the resurrection changed all that. Christians began saying, wait a second, if Jesus was embodied and if he was raised as embodied, maybe the physical world is actually good and well-built and right. And so they began taking this math and they began applying it to the, to the created order, to the physical world. And they did so with stunning results, right? I've always kind of wondered why in the last 200 years, we've had all these technological developments that we couldn't have, that we didn't have for the first, you know, 6,000 years of human history or whatever it's been. Well, the answer is because you have math and a Christian view of creation uh, coinciding to make kind of all the technology that we, we, we enjoy. And there's a guy that's written a book on this 
named Leslie Newbegin called Proper Confidence. He's explained some of this. So if, 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 if all of that, if, if, if you didn't quite track with me there, the main point is this. The resurrection completely changed the course of Western civilization. And so my question this morning for us is this. If the resurrection changed the course of Western civilization, do you think it's possible that the resurrection could change the course of your life? Right? If the resurrection changed the entire course of Western Civ, is it possible that this resurrection could have a powerful impact on your own life today? Paul believes it is. In verse 50, he says, I tell you, brothers, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. And so you may be thinking, well, I thought you said that the resurrection affirms and validates the goodness of the material world or the physical world or even flesh and blood. And here Paul's saying that the flesh and blood will not inherit this coming kingdom. Well, flesh and blood is a reference to the, kind of the sinful self, right? The carnal self, unregenerate sinners. And, and again, we know it's not talking about just the body because Jesus was raised bodily. And in verse 51, Paul tells us that he has this mystery. And mystery mysteries are fun. Um, Paul, Paul's got actually quite a few mysteries in the New Testament. But this one is this. It's that not all believers are going to sleep or die. Some are going to be radically transformed without dying at all. When Christ returns, there's going to be living people on earth and they're going to be radically transformed very quickly. In 1 Thessalonians, Paul explains that the dead will rise at the resurrection um, so that the dead kind of have the advantage and that they'll be risen and transformed first and then those who are alive will be transformed. It's going to happen very quickly. Um, and we all love a quick transformation. I don't even know if it's still on, but Extreme Makeover, The Biggest Loser, these shows where individuals over the course of 30 minutes or an hour, however long the sitcom is, undergo this radical transformation, right? What Paul is talking about is a transformation that is far more profound and far more radical than those transformations. It's going to happen in a flash, in an instant. Actually, the word there is atomos, which is where we get our word Adam. It, it literally means that which cannot be divided, right? It's just a split second. Um, and like, a, like an atom can't be divided. Well, it, I guess technically can, but it's very small. Um, and then we learn that there will be this trumpet that sort of summons the dead. Trumpets were regularly used to herald the arrival of... Of a, of a new king or of, of a king. And here they're heralding the arrival, the arrival of Christ's redeemed bride, the church, transformed and glorious. And then Paul, as we, as we actually um, just read in the liturgy, alludes to the prophets and he says, Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? And Paul can say this with such confidence and gusto because he knows um, that we obsess over, over death's sting and its pinch. And he also knows the good news that Jesus has given us victory over death, right? The one person that should not have died, died 
so that we might have life in the resurrection. And as we said, this is the kind of news that will fundamentally change us. And here's what Paul says. Here's how it's going to change us. It makes us steadfast, immovable, abounding in the Lord's work, and will make our work purposeful. Do you have that kind of Christian stability in your life? Are you unshakable, immovable? Are you productive for the kingdom? Do you have kind of this relentless energy to do, to do the Lord's work? Now, Paul, um, Paul's life is, is, is fascinating. Just to kind of, what we can glean from what he's written in the New Testament is, is pretty amazing. In 2 Corinthians, he's writing to the same church at Corinth, but in, but, um, in the second letter to the Corinthians, chapter 11, he, go, he goes on about some of the sufferings that he experienced. And it's really unbelievable. I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to kind of go through that list of things. He says that in his ministry, in his work, in his work for the Lord, he experienced um, lots of laboring, lots of imprisonments, too many beatings to count usually to the point of death. Five times he was flogged, 39 lashes. And they, they believed that 40 lashes would kill a person. So when they would flog 39 lashes, sort of like, well, we'll do everything possible but kill them. You know, do as much harm as we can without actually killing them. That happened to him five times. Three times he was beaten with rods. Once he was stoned. Um, and I mean, the purpose of a stoning was to kill somebody. I don't, we don't, we don't know how he made that, made it through that, but somehow he did. He was shipwrecked three times. He experienced great dangers at the sea and on land in the city and in the wilderness from robbers, from his own people, from, from, uh, Gentiles, people that were not his own. He had trouble in rivers. There were horrible weather conditions that he was exposed to. He lacked food and drink, and he had many sleepless nights. And on top of all of that, he's a pastor, and he's got this just nagging concern and anxiety about all of his churches that he is shepherding. So, so what would sustain a person through all of that? What, what would make a person immovable and fruitful for the kingdom? And Paul's answer, and I think we should believe him because his life is a testimony to it, is the resurrection of the dead. It's Christ's victory over death. And we, we know that our kind of our view of the, of the future can really shape how we live in the present. And this is true all, all, you know, in all sorts of ways. Um, you know, it's a vision of being a maestro at the piano that drives the piano student to do those daily lessons and, and take the camp, go to the camps and all of the things that they do in order to be a good pianist. It's a, it's a vision of a state championship that energizes the high school athlete to um, participate in all sorts of off-season workouts and camps and practices. It's a vision of wealth that drives the ambitious college student to uh, do well in school, get the best internships, make all the, the, the networking, that the, do all the networking that they need to do so they can get the good job after college. 
And I'm sure we've all experienced this, where maybe you're working at, working at a job, and you've got a vacation coming up, and the week leading up to that vacation is filled with just stuff, issues, junk that comes your way. But all of a sudden, it's so much more tolerable that week, because you've got this vacation that's just, just around the corner, right? The, our vision of the future has the power to shape how we handle the present. And it's even physiological. There was this, a pastor directed me to this story, um, a study that was done. And um, the story, I, I actually listened, it was reported through NPR. And the, the, the title of the story was Mind Over Milkshakes. There's a Dr. Aliyah Crum. She's a um, researcher somewhere in the Northeast. She did a study where she made lots of vanilla milkshakes. All the same. And then she labeled them differently. So she labeled some milkshakes um, indulgence was the, was the name. And it was the, the little slogan was decadence you deserve. 630 calories. And then she had another series of milkshakes that she labeled Cincy Shake. And it was it, the calorie count was like 100, 120 calories. They're all the same shakes. And they all had about 320 calories per shake. Well, the people that were participating in the study did not realize this. And, and, and so they're each drinking different shakes, and they got two groups each drinking these different shakes. And they, um, here's where it gets interesting. Our body produces a hormone called ghrelin when we get hungry. When you get hungry, many of you are probably feeling ghrelin kicking in right now. Um, that is a, that's a hormone that's, that's produced within you, ghrelin, and it, it's telling your body, I'm hungry. And as you eat, uh, ghrelin production slows down and eventually stops. Now, here's what's interesting. So they measured the, the, the ghrelin levels of all of these different participants in this study and got their measurements. And then they measured them after having one shake. The ghrelin levels of the people drinking the indulgent shake stopped very quickly. The ghrelin levels of the people eating the Scentsy shake didn't shop that stop as quickly. They had higher levels of ghrelin in their body. They were drinking the exact same thing. You see, and what, what researchers, the reason this is such a big deal is because researchers have thought that physiology was physical, purely physical, right? A certain amount of calories go into your body, the, the result of how you feel physiologic and how you actually are, arc physiologically is not affected. But here's what this study showed. Your belief about something has the power to change you physiologically. That's what she found. And so if, if, the, if, if the perils of weight gain can change us physiologically, don't you think that Jesus' victory over death would have a similar effect as well? Would actually be able to affect us chemically? I think, Paul, I think that's, I mean, Paul's not thinking in chemical terms and all of that. But that, that is affirming what he says. He, he is saying the resurrection has the power to completely change how we live in this world. Now, underneath all the concerns that we have about death is this sense of psychological homelessness. Right? We don't feel at home in this world. Life kind of feels like the first day of kindergarten for us. We feel alienation on earth. And the reason is that we don't belong here. The, wor- the world is not hospitable to us. Um, did you know that everything causes cancer? 
I've been learning that lately. Every time I hear that another thing causes cancer, I think, well, of course, life in a fallen world, we're going to die, right? And this world is slowly um, killing us. And so it's understandable that in this situation, death keeps us fearful. It keeps us up at night. The death of a loved one really cuts us to the core. Um, We fear ISIS. We fear Ebola. We fear cancer or car accident or, you know, fill in the blank. We fear death. And it's not right. And this is why, as I've said already, humans have obsessed over this reality. I've got a family member right now who's on the cusp of death. I think she will probably die um, in the next few weeks or maybe months. Um, And it, it, it doesn't feel right. Death is not right. We were not. We were not created to die, which is why it feels so wrong to us. It's an invasion. My brother, um, for whatever reason, his home has been broken into. He lived in a house. He's moved now, but in his older house. His home got broken into like three or four times in like a two or three year period. It's pretty pretty regular break-ins, which is maybe part of the reason he moved. But anyway, he, he would say, you know, this is my home. And what was so violating about the break-in is that when I would approach my home and see my window broken and I walk inside and my mattresses are moved around and cushions are thrown and the place is just ransacked, my belongings are gone. When I walk in there, I'm home, but I'm not home. It doesn't feel like home at that point. Why? Because there's an invader that has come in. When you have an invader in your home, home is not home. Right. And. I think we could say that that's what it's like here on Earth. I mean, on the one hand, we look we look at life around us and we say, yes, this is home. We we need food and there's and the earth produces food. We need um, sun and rain, which produces the food, and all of that happens. And we've, we need people. We need community. And there's people. In so many ways, everything around us seems so right. And we, we may think that way for a long time. And then all of a sudden, maybe it's the death of a loved one. At, at one point or another, death is going to hit you close to home. And this place that seems so right all of a sudden seems so wrong. And the reason is because death is an invader. Right? It's an, inva- it's, an, it's, it's an invasion to our home here. It's not the way it's supposed to be. Just like that burglar, those burglars that entered into my brother's home made him no longer feel at home. Death has invaded life here on, on earth. And it makes us not feel at home. Tim Keller's given this example um, of life on Mars. He says, if you go on a spaceship to Mars and you hop off your spaceship, all of a sudden, you know, you're, you're suffocating. Um, you look around and there's no, it's, it's pretty, uh, there's not really any resources for you. There's no people within a matter of seconds. You're going to realize this is not home. (laughs) I can't live here. Um, the reality is earth is a lot like that. It just takes us about 85 years to figure that out. This is not home for us. It will eventually kill us. So how do we feel more at home here? And the answer is by realizing that we are just pilgrims. We're just pilgrims here on our way to Christ's consummated kingdom. What we believe about the next life 
will shape how we live in this one. Um, C.S. Lewis, I'm going to paraphrase this, but basically he says um, that those people that live with all of their energy um, directed towards this life lose both this life and the one to come. And those who live with their energies directed towards the life to come gain both the life to come and this life, right? And it's since we, we live better in this life when our sights are set on the life to come. Have you experienced Christian stability? And I think Paul's belief here is that simply meditating upon and believing that Christ has won us victory over death will make us resilient in the midst of uncertainty. And it's this resurrected life that that we await and that we long for. This will be home at last. And it will be marked by universal flourishing. And actually the prophets talk quite a bit about this. Isaiah talks about a day when swords will um, be beat into plowshares, right? The blacksmith will have no, no purpose any longer to create swords, but plowshares. And, and the blacksmith will have no purpose to create spears, but will then create pruning hooks. And the reason is because there's no weapons um, of death in this new kingdom have now become tools of cultivation. Isaiah also talks about a day when babies can play over snake holes. And not worry, right? Because within the created order, there's um, flourishing and, and animals aren't attacking us like they do in life in a fallen world. Joel describes all of creation as overflowing with his goodness. The mountains drip with wine. The hills flow with milk. Streams are overflowing with water. It's beautiful imagery. Even, even the, uh, the early church father, father, Irenaeus, says this about the new kingdom. And he's really kind of summing up um, what the prophets say. But here's his, his description of what things are going to be like. The days will come in which vines shall grow, each having 10,000 branches, and each, in each branch, 10,000 twigs. And in each twig, 10,000 shoots. And in each one of the shoots, 10,000 clusters. And on every one of the clusters, 10,000 grapes. And every grape, when pressed, will give five and twenty metrets of wine. A lot of wine. I don't know what a metret is. We don't use that anymore, but it's a lot of wine. And when any of the saints shall lay hold of of a cluster, another cluster shall cry out, I am a better cluster. Take me. Bless the Lord through me. Do you see what, what these prophets are talking about? At a very surface kind of viewing of life, it seems, it seems all right. You know, this, this seems like home. But as we inspect things a little bit closer, as we have a little more experience under our belt, we begin to feel the alienation of life here on earth. And it's because of death. But there's a new creation coming, marked by life, right? And the, the longer you live there, the more experience you have under your belt of this, of this life, the deeper you see the life there. Like the deeper you look, you see, you see what he's describing. He's describing. It's a cluster. You see this cluster of grapes. And as you just keep inspecting it at a more microscopic level, you're seeing more abundance and more life and more fruit. That's, that's what we're moving towards. That's what the resurrection is all about. And that, Paul says, is the promise that God makes for those that are in Christ. And it's the promise that will stabilize you 
in an otherwise um, unstable, unstable life, unstable existence. Let's pray. Father, um, we are grateful for your promises. It's frightening to think that we could read through your word, we could open your word. And uh, many people do. Many people spend their entire lives studying your word, and they don't even believe it. They don't believe its promises. They've not been touched by it. Um, We don't want that to happen to us. We want to be changed by it. And we ask that you would do that, that your love would um, would, would, would transform us, and that you would set our hearts and our hopes on the resurrection, on your kingdom, and we thank you that, that doing so would, will make us more fruitful here on, on earth. So help us to be that. And we, um, we ask these things in Christ's name. Amen.